This is the Blood Red podcast from the Liverpool Echo, giving you the inside track on all the big talking points from Anfield. Hello and welcome to the Blood Red podcast on a significant anniversary for Liverpool today, of course, marking one year since Liverpool made it six European Cups, getting their hands on old big ears in Madrid in the Wanda Metropolitano, beating Tottenham by two goals to nil. I'm Guy Clark. Welcome along as we get ready to discuss everything that went on in Madrid and the significance it has had for Jurgen Klopp and his side. Joining me to do all of that is our Liverpool correspondent, Paul Gorst, Connor Dunn and Theo Squires. Gentlemen, how are we all? Not bad. Cracking on. Um, what can you say? I mean, the weather's great and we're, we're, all, we're all stuck indoors, aren't we? But looking forward to uh, running through our favourite memories of, of uh, a year ago today, the Pills 6 European Cup. We've all, I'm sure we've all got our own little ones and I know Connor was there, wasn't he? So uh, looking forward to this one. Yeah, all good here as well. Looking forward to reminiscing about this. Probably one of the best days of my life, so happy days. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm just really hot in Birkenhead. Uh, quite nice looking out the window. So I've got to change the scene today. Obviously, I'm Very guessing big it <laughs> wasn't quite as hot as uh, Madrid last year, I'm sure. But yeah, another happy day to reminisce about. No, it was an absolute scorcher in Madrid. And it, it is one of those that through May, we've done a number of podcasts looking back on significant dates and days for Liverpool semi-finals, finals. We got to the 1st of June and there still is one final one to tick off. And Conor, I'll come to you first, as Gorsty referred to there. You were obviously in Madrid for the Echo, covering the event and covering the match. It was a scorcher, as Theo's already alluded to, but what a day, what a weekend, what a time. Uh, just unbelievable. From start to the end, everything about the trip was just phenomenal. The amount of Liverpool fans travelling over, the sea of fans, the chants, the banners, everywhere you looked. The atmosphere in the city was incredible. There was no animosity, there was no trouble. And it just made for an absolute spectacle of a weekend. That Saturday in the Plaza Felipe oh, was unbelievable. Just, it was in the middle of plinth. Just everywhere you looked was a sea of Liverpool fans. You had the likes of Jamie Webster and people on stage leading the songs, John Barnes doing his rap. And then obviously making your way up to the stadium with trains packed for Liverpool fans and you know hardly saw a Tottenham fan I, I don't even really understand how but it's just the, tra- the numbers Liverpool traveling and you know the result in the end just topped off the best the best weekend ever really and I suppose of course it's, it's one of those the European Cup final and Liverpool basically emptying out of the city to make sure that they're in the Spanish capital to, to celebrate it. Quite a lot like Kiev the year before, so many Liverpool fans making that journey and making sure they were there. I suppose these two finals and capped really with Madrid, really, I suppose in many ways, a bit of a, a rebirth of just Liverpool showing just how vast and big the club's support base really is. Yeah, <clears throat> well, I think if you look at look at Manchester United and Liverpool, they're the historically the two most well-supported clubs in England, aren't they, because of, of a sustained period of success. Liverpool obviously had it in the 70s and 80s, and United in the 90s and, and the early 2000s. And Liverpool, um, I mean, it, it's, it's, become, it's become a little bit cool, hasn't it, to, become, to be a Liverpool fan? And it, what, that wasn't always the case. There seems to be more Liverpool fans about it than ever at the moment because of obviously how good they've gone on to be under Jürgen Klopp. And <clears throat> I, think, I think Kiev was kind of almost at the beginning of something special, you kind of felt something was happening. And when Liverpool lost that one, you went too down because you, you thought this is just the beginning for this team. And then 12 months later, they go and, and kind of exercise those demons against the Spurs team. They'd already beaten home and away that season. And 
Um, they went into that one as favourites, which is probably a little bit of a rarity for Liverpool in, in European Cup finals. And I actually think that that result last year, I've written a piece about it today, it's just gone online actually about... Um, it's the moment they kind of convinced this squad of players that they can actually become winners. Um, obviously, they were League Cup finalists, beaten on penalties. Europa League, they, they were beaten in that one. Uh, Real Madrid in the Champions League final a year, la- year earlier, and then they were runners-up in the Premier League. So, um, so much about it kind of just suggested that these were great players, but nearly many didn't get over the line when it really mattered. So, I think this was actually a massive moment in Jürgen Klopp's time at Liverpool and, and this whole Liverpool project, as you, as you might like to call it. And um, they've only gone on to kind of um, just build on that since, haven't they? How important do you think that was, Theo? Those three final defeats. Everybody sort of used it as a jibe against Liverpool, against Jurgen Klopp. Obviously, he got 97 points in the Premier League and not won the league. It seemed as though everything was sort of built against Klopp in getting that trophy. But of course, in Madrid, he got over the line. Well, it was for Jurgen Klopp as well because his own losing run in finals stretched way back further than him joining Liverpool. And it was always this that he's got this talent. He can build a great squad, whether it is Dortmund or Liverpool. And he just couldn't get it to count when it mattered. He couldn't get it over the line. And when you look at this Liverpool squad, how many of them had been relegated? Like Robertson, Wijnaldum, Shaqiri. They hadn't really made it in certain parts, like Salah not making it with Chelsea. Firmino's not really a striker until he comes to Liverpool. They've all got these own chapters of having to come past this um, and have to prove themselves. And then you think, well, that sort of ties in with the narrative of them not maybe having that quality to go and be the very best. But you think how easy would it have been for them if they weren't fully mentally up for it to crumble if they'd not won the Champions League last year? To have the season they did last year in the Premier League and still fall short, it's just that little bit of belief, wasn't it? Like it can be so crushing for the fans to have what would have been one of the best domestic seasons ever and not have any silverware to show for it. And then they go play Tottenham and they go and put in this. It was a pretty average performance, if we're honest, reflecting on it. But it didn't matter. They got the result. They got the trophy. And it's just built over that for the next 12 months. They're even better in the league. They've won another two trophies. And you think, well, it's not going to be a one-off, is it? They're going to keep on winning trophies and keep being one of the best teams on the planet for the next few years because this team's got a bit more life left in it. Jürgen Klopp signed his contract, got talented young players coming through. And it was just, they needed that moment, just to have that little switch and go, yes, we can do this. So they get that final bit of belief. And now just can't stop them. As we've seen this year, there's only like a couple of teams that have actually been able to beat them. Yeah, definitely that feeling. Connor, I just wondered from your perspective, having been in Shevchenko Park in Kiev and then obviously in the fan park in Madrid, what the differences were in sort of the, the feeling then? Because obviously Kiev, Liverpool hadn't been in a Champions League final for, what, 11 years at that stage, 2007 in Athens. And then obviously a year later, they're they're back in another one. Yeah, to be honest, I think in Kiev, fans just did anything they could to get there because Liverpool were back in the final. But I don't ever think there was like an expectation that Liverpool were definitely going to come home with the trophy. The result was obviously gutting, but I don't feel like anybody really felt that devastated in terms of not thinking that Liverpool weren't going to go on and do it again. So it was almost like Kiev was a, a warm-up for Madrid. Um, Shevchenko Park was crazy, but nowhere near as big as Madrid. Because Madrid is closer, I feel like more, even more fans went because it was kind of an expectation by the time you came to Madrid that Liverpool were going to win the Champions League. And it almost felt like in Madrid, just walking around, just chatting to fans that there was going to be no other conclusion to the Champions League final than Liverpool coming back with the trophy. So, yeah, it was, it was it's an interesting difference. And, yeah, as the boys have, have mentioned there, it was kind of the feeling that 
if Liverpool won that Champions League final in Madrid, it would be the catalyst for them to go on and do something really special, to go on and really start a dynasty in it. They just needed that first moment, which obviously they, they delivered. Yeah, they certainly did deliver. Let's talk about the game then. We're probably not going to spend all too long talking about the game because in, in all honesty, it wasn't the greatest of spectacles. But Gorsley, come to you and I suppose within sort of the first minute, first two minutes, Liverpool gets a penalty and you spoke about already Liverpool exercising demons. One of those players who did that was Mo Salah, of course, who 12 months previously, the final hadn't gone the way he'd hoped. Yeah, I mean... You look back to that 2018 final after Salah had scored 44 goals and he was going into it as one of the most dangerous and informed players in, in the world and Sergio Ramos takes him out and he leaves and the season's over in tears. It's such a sad end to to a, a season of his lifetime. So for him to kind of belt that penalty straight down straight down the middle and, and put Liverpool 1-0 up within a minute of the of the final year later was a kind of massive moment for him and... Um, yeah, I mean, I think that's just eased so many nerves. And I mean, I think, I think Liverpool felt that they were, when Liverpool fans felt that they were favourites against the Tottenham team, they'd beaten home and away that season. Um, but you're still going into quite anxious. So as soon as they got that lead, it's just just a, a massive relief. And then from there on, never really looked like going the other way. Did the Tottenham had a little bit of a go in the second half. Alisson made a few decent saves, but um, it wasn't a great final for anyone. Who wasn't a supporter of either of those clubs, um, and then Divock Origi, of course, sticks it away at the end. And I think, I think when Origi puts that away at the end, it was, uh, I think that was the moment, wasn't it? Everyone knew that it was confirmed that it was done, and Liverpool were, were going to be the champions of Europe. And I just think that moment of, of release is just one that I don't think anyone associated with Liverpool will, will ever forget. No, and I suppose the whole Salah and. Klopp narratives are two of them, but another Theo being obviously that it being Tottenham Hotspur that. Liverpool sort of confirmed themselves being an elite club because, of course, it was, what, 18 months previously at Wembley that Harry Kane had torn apart Dejan Lovren and it hadn't been a great afternoon for Liverpool losing 4-1 in that. But this all of a sudden, as Gorsley said, after going 1-0 up, there wasn't really a feeling that Liverpool were ever going to throw the game away. Well, if you think back a couple of years, Liverpool and Tottenham were probably on a level playing field. And the difference is Liverpool went and spent big on the players they needed to improve the squad, whereas Tottenham didn't spend... And we've only seen there how Liverpool have gone on to bigger and better things and Tottenham have fallen away a bit. We've had so long before Klopp arrived where these were the two teams that you think they were battling for fourth, trying to cling on in that uh, hunt for Champions League football. And there we have them seeing in the final. But did anyone really think Tottenham were going to win the Champions League final last year? It was a strange one because we've had so many finals where Liverpool have been the underdogs. You've had so many moments where there's been late drama into not just in European competitions domestically too there's always been a twist but as soon as that penalty hits the back of the net you're thinking yeah that's pretty much it Liverpool that's been so much better than Tottenham this year they've got that goal that's going to settle the nerves can Tottenham really go and score twice against them when they've got Alistair goal Virgil van Dijk and they've got Joel Matip in the form of his life they've got two of the best fullbacks in Europe and it's a weird one where I can't remember anything of the game apart from the goals and the streaker. <laughs> this is our one. Like, what actually happened? Like, I was thinking about this before we were doing the pod. It's like, I, I remember winning the penalty. I remember Divock Origi scoring. I remember the streaker interruption. But I don't even remember the subs coming on. Whereas you think back to Istanbul, you remember goals, um, client clearances, all the goals, the substitutions, Nesta handballing it, the save from Dudek. Nothing happened in this final apart from the goals. And it's the one that football fans will cherish because it's going to start this new dynasty again in European football under Klopp. 
It's easy to forget, actually, that um, Firmino hadn't played for six weeks before that final. And he started, didn't he? He got dragged at half-time because he, he had a howler. Um, but it obviously made absolutely no difference, really. Rigi came on, Rigi scored, and that's grand. Like, But, yeah, it's, 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 a fun, it's a funny one. But as you were talking there, in the stadium, it felt like relief when the first goal went in. And then it was basically just party time for 70 minutes because Tottenham just didn't really threaten. I know there's a couple of late saves from Allison late on from, was it Son? Um, but other than that, it just, Liverpool almost in cruise control and just to see out the final, which is a really rare thing to see Liverpool do in a, in a, in a really big game. So, Tottenham went into that and didn't have anything to lose. They, they basically um, are an incredible second half, second leg against Ajax, got them there when they probably didn't really deserve to be. And it was the first European Cup final um, they were huge underdogs. They haven't really spent anywhere near some of the other teams in that competition and kind of just there as, as almost like a, a day out and, and had no pressure at all, whereas Liverpool were going into it with, under so much pressure, having just missed out on the Premier League title, having felt short a year before all that, building up so many of the squad knew exactly how they felt and how they didn't want it repeating. So the, the pressure was undoubtedly on Liverpool in, in that game. And um, to be fair to the players, they, they rose to it, didn't they? Yeah, I have to say, I remember... Yeah, managed the game really well. Yeah, no, I was going to say, I, I remember Harry Winks being brought off sort of midway through the second half and thinking he'd actually probably been Spurs' route back in towards getting into the game because he, he looked like the only player who maybe could open up Liverpool. But, of course, it, it went the way that Liverpool were hoping for it to go. And just on a point that Theo was making, Connor, in terms of how when Klopp and Pochettino effectively, respectively, took over at the two clubs, the clubs were in a similar position. Liverpool spent and improved and Tottenham have since fallen away. Easy to say, of course, that Liverpool spent money on Alisson, on Fabinho and Van Dijk, but there's been so many clubs, both Liverpool and Tottenham, actually, in sort of the last decade, Gareth Bale leaving Tottenham, Luis Suarez leaving Liverpool, that it's all it's all well and good getting money for a player like Felipe Coutinho, but it's how you then reinvest it and make sure actually the squad comes back stronger. Yeah, absolutely. I think Liverpool's masterstroke, and we've spoken about this so much, was getting Jurgen Klopp in. You know, it, he has been the huge difference. There was a couple of clubs in the Premier League, even I know Arsenal were looking at him at the same time, but the fact that Liverpool managed to pull that deal off has essentially been the catalyst for this entire success, this entire run. He is the one that, you know, reopened the transfer lines inside the club, which has developed those things where you can go and spend the money on players you know are going to be good, identifying areas and, that is, that is the difference, basically. Liverpool knew what they wanted and went out and got it, whereas Tottenham pretty much didn't, did they? You know, They didn't reinvest their money properly. Um, and that has been a similar story that Liverpool have been on and, until they got Jurgen Klopp, until Jurgen Klopp could you know, put himself on the rebuild and bring in top-class players and make sure Liverpool are you know, the world's best team. It was interesting with this one because you think Liverpool winning that trophy, as we've said, it was that first chapter to get in the success. With Tottenham, it was the feeling that if they'd won that final, it would have been Pochettino's last game. That he wanted to go out on a high because he wasn't going to topple that, was he? Tottenham weren't going to then go and dominate football. They'd have players moving on because they'd got that trophy. Obviously, he stayed because they didn't get that success. And we saw how that panned out for him. They weren't really sure what was going on because there was so much uncertainty. He eventually lost his job. It's like Tottenham, they almost didn't believe they were in the final. They didn't really have a right to be there. That, Like Gorsty said, it was a day out that the manager can leave off the back of it, whereas Klopp's sitting there thinking, if we win this, what players can I attract? What can I go and do next year when he's got his contract but now for another what, four years to go and build on that, to go and dominate? Yeah, and with Liverpool, Gorsty, 
it is that feeling. It is the rebirth. It is the launch pad for what goes on now. And you think even within sort of the, the year that Liverpool have won in Madrid, they've won a Super Cup, they've won the Club World Cup and inevitably are going to win the Premier League. All of a sudden, that tag of not quite getting over the line, they seem to have a, a sh- sort of a, a cloak of almost invincibility, bar obviously that Watford game in the Premier League. Exactly, yeah. And, and James Milner said ex- exactly that in uh, last month. He said just getting that first one over the line was so important. Uh, and you hear it all the time, don't you? You hear this, people talk about um, you know big clubs winning the League Cup because it kind of um, just just brings a little bit of a, a winning mentality around the squad and, and, a, and a winning culture. And I think if you spoke to you know Sir Alex Ferguson and Pep Guardiola and, and whoever else it may be, they tell you that winning that League Cup, Jose Mourinho, for example, they tell you that winning that League Cup was so important for their team to go on and win the Premier League later that season or whatever it may be. It just, it just brings around a, a habit, doesn't it? A winning habit. And Milner said last month that winning that was so important and so it's proved. I mean, that they'll no longer have to worry about being the, the nearly men or the, the ones who fell just short when it really mattered because they'd already done it in the biggest fixture in club football a few months earlier. So they went and won the Super Cup and then they went and won the club's first ever Club World Cup in December and now they're going to win the, the Premier League in, in what we expect to be a few weeks. So um, it is just about getting that, that first one over the line, I think. And perhaps that might have happened a year earlier in Kiev, but... Uh, as it, as it transpires, they have to wait a year and and um, have just gone on strength to strength. Yeah, maybe you don't get the feeling that Liverpool were, were probably quite complete to do it in Kiev. Obviously, Alisson Becker coming in off the back of that and Fabinho as well. And now we, we see the squad we do. The Blood Red Podcast from the Liverpool Echo. One player we must talk about, Connor, is Divock Origi, as you said, came on for Roberto Firmino in the game. And he'd done so much to obviously get Liverpool to the final in itself with his starring role against Barcelona at Anfield. And, well, he topped it off with that goal in the final, gets a new contract and sort of propelled into a, a state of cult hero status that I'm sure that not many Liverpool players before or in the future will, will ever have. Yeah, well, I mean, it's a, it's an absolute dream to score in a in a Champions League final, let alone to seal the Champions League for a club. And the way that Origi came to prominence through the Barcelona game and everything else, and Liverpool needed him, is just you just you would never even imagine if you went and pitched that idea to Hollywood Origi's story that season, they'd be like, that's way too far fetched. You're having a laugh, but, but you know, it's just how these stories go, isn't it? But yeah, I mean, I couldn't have really thought of anyone better to seal that title after the season that he had and after he came to help Liverpool out. But to talk about Origi specifically, I've never really seen a player, a confidence player like Origi, so much so that when he is on form, he is on the form of his life, you know, scoring two against Barcelona, great finish in the Champions League final. It's just like the world at his feet, he can do anything. But obviously when it goes the other way, it's, it's a little bit trickier for him. Yeah, and Theo, you said before about the game itself that you don't really remember much apart from the goals. Does Steve Origi's season for 2018-19 not fall into the same category? You don't really recall all of the things he did, apart from the goals he scored. It was a really weird season for him, because I think he, he nearly goes to Wolves, doesn't he, in the summer after a season on loan where he was pretty disappointing in Germany. Nearly got relegated there. I think his first appearance um, last season was well, coming on as a sub against Red Star in a disappointing yeah. defeat. Um, and then he first Premier League appearance is obviously getting that fluky winner in the derby against Everton in the last minute. 
and he still doesn't really pop up until we get to spring. There's a couple of goals in like mid uh, midweek games when he's just there as an, an extra sort of man giving a rest to some of the other players. And then all of a sudden, Barcelona, in a game that Liverpool should had no right to come back in, really. It was just a famous handful night, as we've covered before. And you think, hang on, where's this player been for the last two, three years? <laughs> World's at his feet. You think Liverpool have got a really good striker who's an option. But the problem with Origi is he always seems to have to be shoe-on, doesn't he, to fit in with the rest of the players. Like When he's on form, he's great, but he doesn't quite click in that front three. As we've seen this year, he's sort of been on the left-hand side where he plays his best football centrally. His big moments last year came centrally, and he hasn't had the option there since then. But it's one where he's a highlights player, he's a YouTube player. If you watch all his great goals, you think, oh, he's got a hell of a finish on him. He's got pace, he's got power. But then he can trip over his own feet as well and just be have awful stinkers of games where you're going to sub him at half-time. He's a real hot and cold player. And I suppose for him, Gorsty, Madrid may be one of those sort of moments where he looks back. It's obviously the highlight of his career. But what is he, 24-25? And yet we've then not seen him kick on since then. Yeah, it's a, it's a really strange Liverpool career. It's, he's the player who scored the winner in the Champions League final. He's the player who scored twice against Barcelona in the semi-final. And he's also the player who had a Midland year at Wolfsburg and had a, you know, wherever else. It's, it's just, it's, it's such a strange one. I mean, he's, he's um, as Theo says, he's almost like a highlights player, isn't he? A, a player play for big moments and, and not much else in between. It's such a surreal contrast with him. Um, I, I think Liverpool are now kind of getting to the point where they, they might want a little bit more from players who are back up to, to the, the, the established order. Um, I, I like Origi, and I'd like to, like to see him stick around for, um, for you know, FA Cup, League Cup um, games against teams lower down the league. Liverpool should be beaten to kind of give the, the others a rest. I think he, he's almost a perfect squad player, if you like. Um, but I think Liverpool are at a point now where perhaps they, they need someone with a little bit more. Um, See, I wouldn't even say quality is the right way because I do think he has quality. It's just a case of almost delivering a, a bit more readily when the stakes aren't as high, if you like. Um, but yeah, it, it's it's such a such a surreal Liverpool career that Divock Origi's had, and, and he's been around now for, for for quite a while, hasn't he? He was signed in 2014, and, and he's, he's still here now. So it's a strange career, but um, I think whenever he does leave Anfield, he'll uh, he'll leave it with the you know, so many great memories of, of last season. Yeah, I, thought... I think you want Origi to kind of stay for as long as Origi wants to stay, really, don't you? Because Klopp is going to, you know, use him as he sees fit, which, as you say, is going to be League Cup, it's going to be FA Cup, it's going to be stuff like that, especially if Liverpool, you know, do what they could do in the transfer market this summer and bring in some more backups for the front three. But that was the point. When Wolves came knocking, Origi said, no, no, he wanted to stay. He wanted to fight for his place. And obviously, with the season he had, you would give him every right to be like, if you want to stay at Liverpool, you want to still have a part to play in this team, then by all means, you can leave it. Gonna go and be a talisman and the main man at a club in a mid-table Premier League club, say, then he'd probably be perfect for that. But I would never begrudge him for living the rest of his days at Melwood if he really wants to. <laughs> It's almost a, a new contract out of sentiment. It's like if he hadn't signed um, scored the second goal in the Champions League final, you could have seen him leaving on a high and that would have been fine. Liverpool could have got and signed a striker last summer. And it's one where you wouldn't have begrudged him a move this summer, but obviously he's going to have to stay because of how the climate is. No one's going to be able to afford him. Liverpool won't want to lose him. and he's So he's going to be what, 
uh, treading water for another 12 months. He'll get his opportunities with the Africa Cup of Nations. So you're hoping you can see a bit more consistency from him for a month, six weeks there. He's going to get his opportunities this season. But it's that feeling where it's just going to be another Divock campaign, isn't it? You know what you're going to get with him. He's going to disappear for two, three months, pop up of a really hot six weeks, disappear again, and then probably score like a goal that wins a Premier League or a mm-hmm. massive goal in the Champions League and then just ride out high, get another year at the club again. Yeah, Gorsty, you were saying about keeping him about for lesser games, FA Cup, League Cup... Barcelona, Tottenham. It's just one of those where he just he just does it in in the biggest games of all. But we we best talk about one more player before we go, and that being a man who joined the likes of Emlyn Hughes, Graham Souness, Phil Thompson, and Stephen Gerrard as being a Liverpool European Cup winning captain, and that being Jordan Henderson, who I think we've spoke about Klopp, we've spoke about Salah, we've spoke about Origi. Jordan Henderson, Gorsty, probably had the biggest job to do in terms of winning that trophy and converting his doubters, as Klopp said, into believers. Yeah, I made this point about Henderson a couple of weeks ago on, on one of our pods. Um, it's, it's sad how perceptions stick. Um, Jordan Henderson had a, a, had a certain perception when he joined Liverpool in 2011. And he's done so much since. And still, people don't think he's that good a footballer. It's, it's just a real thing how like, people never actually think think too much. People just you know get, get a certain mind state and and a certain opinion, and and you stick to it, and and nothing will will change that. Winning the Premier League title by what, you know, going to win it by thirty points or whatever it's going to be. Um, <clears throat> he's won the Champions League for them. He's, he was the captain, and still people persist that he's that he's not that great a midfielder. So, yeah, I mean, I, I, if you don't rate Henderson at this point, you never will. So it's um, I, I just say that I'm a massive fan of him. He's a Liverpool captain. There's a reason he's the skipper. He's so important to that dressing room. So important as a team to to keep it all ticking over in the middle. So great energy, underrated passing range, um, and such a leader. And uh, I, I can't speak highly enough of him. Yeah. So I think that 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 for him was, was the the perfect moment of of um, you know two fingers up to his critics. But um, I don't think p- people who don't rate Henderson will ever change their their viewpoints at this stage. It was just a bit of a moment of vindication for Henderson, really, wasn't it? You only needed to see that when he lifted that trophy or when he went over and hugged his dad or just the emotion he was displaying, hugging Klopp. Just the whole, the whole thing it was almost just like a big release of being like, look, I am that player. I've proved I'm that player to everybody that's ever doubted me. I have the silverware now. You can never say anything different. Obviously, you have all of us and a lot of people who, you know, went and watched them full play. You watch Henderson and you realise what he does for the team. You realise how good he is. There's so, so many who only judge players by their trophies or only judge players by their goals or whatever. And obviously for Henderson, that's just a, a moment where you can say, well, come, come at me now, really. Liverpool fans have been sport for like over a decade because they've had one of the best players the club's ever had as the captain. You have like the two types of captains, don't you? You have the shouters and you have the ones that lead by example. You give your armband to your best player or you give it to your best leader. And we've seen before when clubs or national teams have given it to the best player, you think they're not quite giving it enough what you'd want from a captain. They're not there to get that extra 5% when your clubs or whatever are struggling, when you need them to get them over the line. Whereas Henderson is there motivating every single player. And the way Liverpool's story under Klopp of rising from 
of like struggling in mid-table, losing these cup finals to get in this triumphant success. It is a testament to the whole team. But Henderson's had that exact same story, even more upheaval, kind of come back from almost being sold to Fulham. And that's what you want in a captain, that he can lead by example in that you have no excuse not to perform. Because look what I've had to do to get to where I am for this club. He is the perfect role model for every single young player coming through the ranks. And it's the same with, like, he is the best leader. People might want Virgil van Dijk to do it, but Virgil van Dijk doesn't need the armband to be that leader at the back. Anderson's there motivating every single player, covering every single blade of grass. And he's just a true professional. He should get player of the year this year, and he fully deserves to be a Champions League winning captain and a, the first Liverpool captain to lift the Premier League trophy. Is that the thing, Gorsley, that he's the man after the man in terms of Steven Gerrard, who, as we saw in 2006 and 2005, can pick a final up by the scruff of the neck and do it himself? Whereas Jordan Henderson, he does, doesn't suffer fools, does he? If if Mohamed Salah beats four players in one move and then curls a shot wide of the target, Henderson's immediately onto him, saying, put the ball in the back of the net. He demands so much of every player. Unlike Van Dijk, he <coughs> improves that defensive unit around him. Henderson has an impact on every one of the other nine outfield players on the pitch at every single moment the game is being played, does he not? Yeah, exactly. It's, it's him and James Milner, aren't they? They're the, the, the bad cop and the even worse cop, so let's believe in the Liverpool camp, who just, just exact so so much of, of that squad at every moment. And, and there's a reason that the likes of Milner have been around for, you know, Milner's been playing in the Premier League for half his life. Um, he's one of the, the all-time record appearance holders, and it's because of that. That dedication to your craft, the, the longevity, the, the willingness to try and exact everything out of your talent and, and your, your ability to work. And Henderson's come from the same cloth. I think, what is he now, 29? He's been in the pool for, for nearly a decade now. And um, I think sometimes that, that's a little bit overlooked. And of course, he, he's not as talented as his, his predecessor with the Ironman, but no one is. As, you know, Steven Gerrard was a once in a lifetime player. So um, for me, Henderson is. is the ideal captain for the way he kind of cajoles all all the rest of the team. He doesn't let them have an off day, and he's so crucial to um, to the, the the team's ability to kind of never. Ne- I mean, you, you never see Liverpool kind of approach a game with complacency, do you? And that's down to Klopp and it's down to, to Henderson on the pitch. I mean, not no one ever gets complacent at Liverpool, and, and Klopp actually said he didn't actually know what the word meant um, in one of our press breakouts a few months ago, and. Um, he, he wasn't just saying it to, you know, for, for the headlines. He genuinely didn't know how to say that word, complacency, and that filters through. And Henderson is the one on the pitch delivering that message. It's on and off the pitch for Henderson, though, isn't it? You know, you see him as a leader on the pitch. You see him, as you say, cajoling every single player. You see him coaching players. You see him getting a player. You see him demanding it. He demands it off the pitch. He demands it in the dressing room. It's every aspect of, of life at Liverpool, which is why the standards are so ridiculously high, you know. The players talk about the, the world-class standard in training. And, and that'll be because the likes of Milner and Henderson are absolutely flying into every tackle, hitting every pass perfectly. And everyone else is thinking, no, I'm going to need to keep up my standards just to even keep up. And obviously that translates into games, wins, trophies, leagues. And I actually remember, I always come back to this with Henderson, that he, um, he was in England training. I think it was Darren Bent that said he had to be brought out of training because the monitors that monitor their heart he was working in such a high zone for so long that he was going to die if he carried on or something absolutely crazy. But it's just that desire to want to be the best, to want to do better and getting that out of everybody around you, which, you know, makes him such a phenomenal Liverpool captain. No, certainly is the case. Well, 
We spent a good half an hour talking about Madrid. There's plenty more memories that we didn't scratch, even scratch the surface with. If you do want more Madrid memories, though, check out the Blood Red channel. If you want to check out our YouTube documentary, you can find that on the Blood Red channel. And wherever you get your audio on demand, we've also got our Let's Talk About Six podcast documentary documenting the day, the weekend that Liverpool did make it six European Cups. That's it from us here, though, on Blood Red. Until next time, it's bye for now. You've been listening to the Blood Red podcast from the Liverpool Echo.